This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up, you'll hear from historians Professor Michelle Arrow and Professor Frank Bongiorno. They joined me to talk about the disturbing new history wars which have seen Australia's national cultural institutions suffer severe cumulative funding cuts over decades. These cuts have been affecting several national cultural institutions. For example, the National Library of Australia has taken an unprecedented step and closed access to its manuscript collections for seven months to repair a leaking roof. Michelle and Frank discuss the enormous effects this will have on the work of academics, students and historians, as well as the national cultural policy to be developed and what needs to change to protect our nation's heritage and cultural institutions. Then, I re-aired a special interview with former Vice President of the Geelong Football Club, Bob Gartland, and Geelong Gallery Director, Jason Smith. They discuss the history of Aussie rules football and the second oldest continuous sporting organisation in the world, the Geelong Football Club. They explore the inextricable link between the Geelong Football Club and the city of Geelong and talk about Bob's massive historical Geelong Footy Club collection, which was on show in 2019 at the Geelong Gallery. Then, finally... Professor Chris Wallace from the University of Canberra joined me to talk about federal politics, including the introduction of the federal ICAC legislation, the federal budget, Labor's management of the COVID-19 pandemic, and much more. Now we're going to jump into my conversation with two guests I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with before. Dr. Michelle Arrow is a professor in modern history at Macquarie University and Dr. Frank Bongiorno is professor of history at the Australian National University. They both also have other roles, including the fact that Frank is the president of the Australian Historical Association and Michelle is the vice president of the Australian Historical Association, which is really the peak body for Australian history and um, historians and the discipline of history. So it's really lovely to have both of you on the program again to talk about what is such a vital issue. It's all kind of surrounding this constant theme and ongoing issue we've seen in the news around the underfunding and funding cuts to our national institutions, especially those based up in Canberra, like the National Library of Australia, the National Gallery of Australia, the National Sound and Film Archives. We've also got the National Portrait Gallery, the National Archives of Australia. There are so many really critical cultural institutions that have been undermined, essentially. Their role and function in society have been undermined. And that really made the news and kind of hit our consciousness when we found out that the National Library's manuscript collection will be closed entirely for seven months from the 5th of September this year up until late March 2023. And this is due to building repairs and the risk of further damage to its manuscript collections. This is because of a leaking roof, which was apparently caused by hail in 2020. It's kind of shocking to think that such a thing could happen in our National Library of Australia, such a a quite big and imposing building. It's kind of hard to think that there'd be a leaky roof over there. But I wanted to bring both of you in, first of all, and welcome you to the show and then talk about these issues. So welcome, Michelle, and welcome, Frank. Thanks, Amy. Amy, great to be here. 
Now, you both wrote a fantastic op-ed in the what used to be Fairfax, now nine papers. It's called The Real History War is the Attack on Our Archives and Libraries. And I'm sure listeners might have been familiar with the concept of a history war because we remember the history wars of the Howard era uh, and just how damaging they have been. But what is this history war that we're talking about? Frank, you go first and then I can... So, I mean, this is, I guess, a part of a much larger story. The story of the National Library, that is, is a part of a much larger story of neglect of our public institutions, our cultural institutions, many of them based here in Canberra but serving the nation. And both Michelle and I have been very active in relation also to the National Archives, Um but, uh, yes, in, in this particular case, we, we um, are very concerned, obviously, about uh, the National Library's situation. We uh, would argue that it, it has been a part of a, a much longer-term neglect of these institutions. They're the institutions that, that carry Australian stories, that allow Australian stories to be told. Um, they contain really some of the most, I guess, precious documents and objects um, in our culture, um, Indigenous, uh, settler, um, a whole range, uh, migrants, um, and to the extent that they are inaccessible to um, to scholars, to ordinary Australians, we would argue that our culture is being impoverished. So, yeah, the, the history wars in the past have often been about those highly charged uh, kinds of things you find in op-eds, in, in uh, newspapers and uh, in conservative magazines and all the rest of it. But we, we would argue that the real history war is is one that is actually, you know, really undermining our capacity to do history and to be aware, to be conscious of, of um, our, our country's past. And, Michelle, there's even an ideological war that's been waged by the coalition governments, as you and Frank say in this piece, for Scott Morrison, Tony Abbott and their ministers, Australian history was a tool in a larger political project to stifle dissent and insist on a single legitimate point of view. And you point out the fact that people, especially those talking about the history curriculum for students, were trying to encourage students to participate in evidence-based debate like you would in the discipline of history rather than just an exercise in rote learning. So could you also address that element, this kind of ideological component to the funding situation and just more broadly the way that history has been approached by the coalition previous governments? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look back at the longer idea of history wars, they really started with in the Howard period where he explicitly addressed history as part of his broader project to kind of shape national identity and kind of present his views around national identity. And I think in that debate, Howard often presented historians as kind of enemies of the nation. They weren't patriotic. They were bringing up this unpleasant aspect of Australian history and they were seeking to divide the nation. And really, in in the Howard period, Period, it was a lot about debating the legitimacy of, of issues like the stolen generations, of debating um, was there really a, a kind of were there really frontier conflicts and, and that that resulted in the loss of Indigenous lives. Of course, all of those things were part of that uh, kind of 
Howard view of history. I think under Morrison and Abbott in the more recent period, we've really seen a focus on military history and the way that military history is being elevated above all other kinds of history as really the only kind of stories that you need to understand Australian history. So one of the interesting things that we can see across this decade is that the, the Liberal government over the last decade really did kind of um, wage a very particular uh, set of campaigns to elevate military history. If we look at the funding for the war memorial that happened over the decade, in 2013, the war memorial got about $90 million a year compared to $255 million for all the other cultural institutions. They now, that funding for the war memorial over the decade has doubled. You know, so the War Memorial now gets about 200 million, while the 255 million that was available to the National Cultural Institutions has barely increased. It's gone up by about $5 million over the decade. So they've put their money where their mouth is, and they're really trying to push a, a kind of idea that Anzac and military history is the only way, only history that you need to understand, and all the other institutions have kind of been, you know, have been left by the wayside in that. So it's been a very blunt instrument, but it's been very effective. You know, these institutions like the National Library, like the National Archives, you know, the National Library's roof is leaking. Uh, the National Archives can't provide documents to researchers within a five-day, you know, within less than a five-day time frame. You know, meanwhile, the War Memorial has been given a very, uh, you know, impressive and, and large extension, $500 million worth, to a very recently um, constructed building. So, you know, we would argue that in their kind of attempts to say historians are waging a history war, they're waging war on, you know, national identity, all the rest of it, we would say that, you know, historians, the real history war is being waged on these institutions because they're the ones that are losing out in this kind of quite explicit campaign, I think, to overfund some aspects of our past and to underfund others. Indeed, um, indeed. And the institutions, as you were saying, it's not confined to the National Library. The National Gallery of Australia, it's been reported earlier this year, has a $67 million black hole in its budget mm. and, in fact, has been plagued with leaking roofs and windows which have actually damaged some artworks. With one of the reports from the Australian National Audit Office in 2018 really revealing the extent to which their operating budget has been drastically reduced. And similarly, in 2018, the National Portrait Gallery was forced to close once again to fix water leaks. So, you know, it's kind of nuts, I've got to say, to think that, <laughs> you know, we've known about this for a very long time and yet we're still doing it. So why, why is this continuing? Why, you know, with all the reporting that we've heard over years and years, are we in this position that we're in? Oh, it's got a lot to do with politics, Amy. Mm. I mean, the point Michelle makes about the elevation of military history isn't politically innocent. It's, it's, mm. it, uh, it's useful to politicians and I wouldn't just include the coalition there. I mean, mm. there's been... In fact, that particular development of the very expensive development of the Australian War Memorial gained bipartisan. Yeah. I mean, an irony I'd point to here too is, I mean, if military history is your thing, the reality here is that the bulk of, uh, you know, military service records of individual uh, service personnel are in the National Archives. Yes. The John papers are in the National Library. So there's a kind of also a slide of hand operating here mm. in which Australian War Memorial is regarded as kind of the only custodian of the country's war history or military yeah. history. In fact, 
you know, all of these institutions are, are custodians of that, as well as of all the other stories that mm. we we should be telling. Um, in terms of the, the physical fabric, um, one of the things you notice in, in Canberra is that a lot of this city went up in the 1960s. Um, it, it's full of 1960s and 1970s buildings. And one of the realities of 1960s and 1970s buildings is that after 50 years, they're, 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 they look a bit like jaded rock stars. Um, they, they're, they're, they're not even, they need a bit of patching up, to put it mildly. And, yeah. and so the case of the National Library, yeah, on the 20th of January 2020, there was a devastating hailstorm in Canberra that, that you know, did vast amounts of damage to a vast number of buildings, cars and all the rest of it. But there are also ongoing, continuing problems in the building that are not being properly funded um, for, for, for basically repairs. I mean, the library doesn't get uh, a separate budget, uh, like, a you know, it doesn't get a budget allocation for actually fixing the building. I mean, it seems almost extraordinary that this could be the case, but the library actually has to find money from its general budget, which is really supposed to be there primarily to make these documents available. Mm. It's got to use that money on a continuing basis to actually patch up the building. And, and you know, I would imagine that these are the same kinds of problems that are occurring in these other institutions like the National Gallery. And, yeah, look, um, it, it, it is really worrying because it is jeopardising some of the, the, the holdings of, of these repositories. And, and that, that should be of concern to every Australian, not just those who are really engaged with scholarship. Yes, totally. Uh, I was reading a piece in the ABC News, uh, which also was talking to the library's director general, Mary Louise Ayres. She raised something which shocked me, saying that the library wasn't able to keep accommodating its growing collection or digitise its archives. And she said that since 2017, the National Library has not received any funds for those archives, including the popular online service Trove, which is just such an essential service. It's something that so many Australians use, whether you're a historian or just an everyday person. And I wanted to understand from both of you the significance of that, you know, the significance of digitisation and these services like Trove, but also clearly the in-person manuscript collections where people will literally go into the building and order up a set of boxes and files and, and rifle through them by hand. Yes. I mean, look, one of the things that is frustrating for library users is the the absence of, you know, the fact that we can no longer access for at least seven months the manuscript collections. I'm working on a biography at the moment and I have suddenly had to re sort of redraw my research plans because the material that I look at in the manuscripts collection is not digitised as the bulk of those manuscript collections are not digitised simply because there's just so much material. I mean, the collection I'm looking at is about 100 boxes. It contains so much material that's not likely to get the kinds of um, repeat use that justifies, you know, digitising it. So it's simply a matter of going through and, and doing your own research, going through, you know, um, digitising it yourself in some ways for reference copies. But that's probably the case for most researchers, that they're using materials that aren't digitised. Um, and the library itself, of course, is also facing issues that, as you raise, that they can't afford to necessarily expand um, the sorts of material that's available in Trove. Um, so the kind of digitisation is no substitute for the sort of in-person access that most researchers require. Mm. And we've now had a situation where, 
you know, um, the library was largely closed during the COVID lockdown in 2021. So if you were a PhD student who had been using collections last year, you would have, and, and you were hoping to use them into the future, you would now be looking at about a year and a half where you haven't had any access to that material. And, you know, we like to make the argument that that libraries and archives are the kind of scientific laboratories of historians. They're the places where we do that kind of important primary research and to kind of lock people out of that for such an extended period of time. And also with really almost no notice, I think mm. research has got about five days, to, you know, so there was no way to kind of order ahead or to make sure that you could access materials. I mean, it's pretty devastating in terms of, um, you know, research that it needs to be done in a timely fashion. It's it's not just kind of hobbyists, it's actually people's livelihoods and work that requires this access. Yes, well, not everyone lives in Canberra either. I know so many no. people make special trips to the library, you know, just for a week to go up yes. and do that work. So, yeah, it's a very organised thing to go up there. And I myself have used that collection and it, as you say, you cannot replace it with digitisation. It's something that you absolutely have to to go in person yeah. to do. And Frank, also let's let's address what Michelle has just mentioned because the Australian Historical Association put out a media release when they discovered this news about the closure of the manuscript collection um, and just how much it was going to affect historians, but as Michelle has said, postgraduate students and other researchers. What is the position of the Australian Historical Association in relation to this? And has the National Library provided any workarounds at all for people who find themselves in such a dire situation? Yeah, there aren't terribly many workarounds available, Amy. I mean, the, the yeah. library, of course, is you know, sympathetic to mm the problems that researchers now face. And, and yes, I mean, um, many are in, in, in situations such as Michelle just described of having a, a funded project that, that basically, um, in, in some respects at least, has to be put on hold for long periods of time. PhD students who are also, you know, funded for by scholarships and all the rest of it who aren't able to complete their work. Honours students who have to complete their work in a, a thesis in a very concentrated period of perhaps a year are obviously very disadvantaged by this. So the AHA has, you know, obviously great concerns about historians in that situation. These are our members, really, and uh, you know, we we um, are obviously going to do what we can to work with them uh, to liaise with the library to find workarounds where they're available, but. Um, you know, when you're dealing with unique materials such as you find in the manuscripts room, the, the number of sort of um, alternatives or options for sort of getting around these sorts of problems is pretty is pretty limited, actually. Um, and yeah, look, digitisation um, is is a blessing, I think, for for um, researchers in all sorts of ways. But yeah, we need to recognise here too that that Trove um, has run out of funding. I mean, Trove is one of the great digitisation projects, not just in this country, but in the world. It is it is a world-class project, um, one of the, the really important um, databases globally, but it, it has no money. And so it's not going to be further developed uh, to any great extent until it's, it's properly funded and until government is willing to invest in it. I mean, philanthropic money is simply not going to fill that sort of gap. So, you know, we, we support, the AHA supports digitisation, um, we, we love the way that it, it provides opportunities for people around the country to gain access to, to uh, material in the National um, Library who would otherwise find it difficult to get to Canberra, expensive to, to get to Canberra. 
it's not a solution to every problem. And it's certainly, um, it's, 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 it has a limited capacity, I guess, to, to do the work that we'd like it to do if governments aren't actually willing to pay for it. Because digitisation is, is in fact, really expensive. I mean, it's not simply a, a matter of, uh, you know, sort of a photo, a photo image here and there. I mean, really substantial digitisation projects are quite costly and yeah. uh, we require government support. And certainly they're handling very fragile materials sometimes. Just to give one example, I can vouch that the Trove archive, while being very extensive, you know, there are plenty of gaps that could be filled if there was funding available. There's many country newspapers from Victoria that aren't on Trove or that only have, you know, four years on Trove and then there's a big gap and you have to go out to a museum in the middle of nowhere to use their microfilm, <laughs> which I just did on my holidays. You know, so there is such a, a need for more funding and I note that the last paragraph of your media release calls on the present government to inject emergency funding into the national cultural institutions. Have you heard or had any response back from government or even heard any inklings from government that there is an intention, given an October budget is coming, to inject even temporary funding into the National Library? Not yet, not yet. I mean, I think that it's it's probably the situation where, I mean, I can only imagine the demands that are being made on the government at the moment in terms of, you know, because this sector is not the only sector that has faced a decade of, of you know, neglect. Um, and so we haven't heard anything yet. I suspect it may be more of a long-term project related to the development of national cultural policy because mm. strengthening the national cultural or strengthening cultural institutions is one of the named planks of the arts policy that is in development at the moment. So I'm not writing it off yet. I think we're still, you know, we, sh we should still... Um, be optimistic or at least hopeful for some change, but at the moment there hasn't been anything announced. Yeah, and I do note that in your piece you say that there is unfortunately a bipartisanship in the lack of funding, in a historical sense at least, with Labor's introduction of efficiency dividends in the late 1980s, yeah. laying the foundations for the present crisis. Um, and then, as you say, the Coalition inflicted deeper funding cuts over the past decade, which will all recall if we've been following this issue. So given that history of both sides contributing to the problem and the, the Treasurer's indications that he's trying to cut the budget, not increase the budget, it is, I think, probably concerning for some. Are you worried that it might be too late by the time that the cultural policy is developed and we get to perhaps the May budget next year? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, Amy. I mean, the whole latency issue also came up in relation to the National Archives because, mm. and the other place is the National um, uh, Film and Sound Archives. Mm. Yes, I mean, they in particular have quite a lot of uh, resources, audiovisual, that quite frankly, if they're not digitised soon, they're gone forever. Um, and, and that's that's a, a major worry in relation to um, to funding. I mean, if, if the funding comes too late, material like that uh, will potentially be be lost. You know, our, our grand film heritage. Uh, you know, in the National Archives too. Uh, mm. As I've, you know, we we um, were involved in a campaign that was very much focused on those issues of of preservation. I mean, in terms of the forthcoming budgets, I don't think there's terribly much expectation about October, which is a, a government effectively announcing various uh, initiatives, I think, coming out of its election promises. I think if, if anything is going to happen, it's going to be May. So that, that's the one that I guess we're really hanging out for and really looking to, to provide 
the kinds of um, support and relief that we hope might be coming. I, I was very interested in your comment, Amy, about the four years of country newspapers. And, of course, we know which four years they are, don't we? It's 1914. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, again, it's a lot of elevation of military heritage and how wonderful it is to be able to look at that material. I mean, I was able to find out what my family had been doing up in the Wimra in that period. But the reality is that, yeah. Um, I wanted the 19th century, by the way, so I wasn't very interested in World War One. <laughs> <laughs> we, we want the rest of it as well. Yeah. And what a, what a great resource it would be to have more of those. But mm. again, happen unless, unless governments are willing to pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the national cultural policy and the development of this, because that is something that Labor has been pushing for. And clearly in the arts and cultural space, we've been drifting very much. And the coalition government seems to have been all over the place with arts and culture and certainly not paid as much attention as traditionally a Labor government would to this area. We have seen a group of experts put together and thankfully, we now do have a historian on that panel. So that's really exciting. But I wanted to get your sense, both of you, as to what some of the priorities will be or should be for that body when they're thinking about the role of history and historians in the development of a national cultural policy. Look, I mean, I think one of the things that is that I, that's worth saying, I think, to begin with is that you know, we really have had a pretty piecemeal approach to culture over the last decade. And I think that it's important to sort of revive um, the national cultural policy that the Labor Party introduced, I think, shortly before they were voted out of office last time. So it's kind of interesting, I think, that they're seeking to revise rather than reinvent, you know, entirely the policy. And I think it's it's going to be an updating of the, of the older policy. Um, I think one of the things that we saw under the previous government was often a not just piecemeal approach, but kind of letting things go to a point where they fell into almost total disrepair and then they could kind of come in and be the hero, like the Film and Sound Archive, like the National Archives, pushed to the point where they they sort of had to, um, you know, in, reintroduce some funding or, or restore funding that had been removed. So it's great, I think, to see a more wholehearted approach to cultural policy being um, implemented under this um, government. And I think... You know the the submission that we made to the to the um, the groups that were seeking feedback about the policy was really to kind of uh, say that history underpins so many of the aspects of the national cultural policy, um, both in terms of thinking about the kind of ways that historians have, um, you know, worked to diversify, I guess, the ways that Australian history is understood, um, the ways that the, the role of the national cultural institutions in terms of audience development and, and kind of thinking about um, the role of historians as workers, as writers, those things. But I think particularly one of the things that is, is heartening to see in the, the kind of draft cultural policy is the national cultural institutions. And one of the things that we made a, a strong case in relation to this is to kind of restore some of the specific subject area expertise to those national cultural institutions. If you're going to have a look at the, the boards and advisory councils of a number of the national cultural institutions, they're full of all kinds of interesting people, but there's very few historians, museum experts, subject yeah. matter experts on those panels. And I think 
one one of the things I suspect is that a lot of these um, board appointments, as they often are for both sides of politics, are seen as kind of political prizes, like little things to be doled out to people who you like and, you know, things like that. We're saying that we really think it's very important that these institutions take advantage of the expertise that, you know, is out there in the art sector, in the academic community and kind of restore um, some sort of uh, rigour, I think, to those institutional um, governing bodies. Mm. Frank, and also I'd love it if you could comment on your um, proposition about the Australian War Memorial moving portfolios as well. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, to take that one, um, I mean, we feel that one of the things that's driving um, the, the misallocation of resources, you know, the fact mm. that the War Memorial is getting so much and the rest of them so little, um, is that they're in different portfolios. I mean, basically... Uh, the War Memorial sits in Veterans Affairs within the larger defence portfolio. Um, most of the institutions, not all of the other cultural institutions, but all of the big ones that we've been talking about, basically, see that portfolio whose name keeps changing. Uh, sometimes communication. <laughs> I think there was a period under the, the previous government where the word arts wasn't mentioned from mm. memory. Mm -hmm. So we feel that, and, and, you know, others have made this case, you know, over over the long haul, that if it were to sit within um, the arts portfolio, it would actually be possible to think about it in terms of a broader arts and cultural policy. I mean, the AWM is is um, very important to veterans and, and veterans' families, but it's, it's a possession for the whole country. I mean, that's why it was put there. Uh, that's why it was, it was created uh, back in the 1920s and 30s. It was meant to be something for the nation. And, and so there isn't a strong justification, really, for it sitting within... Uh, uh, veterans Affairs or, or Defence. Um, and, and that, of course, also, yes, it affects the broader issue of, of the representation on boards. Uh, I don't think there's any historian on the board of the Australian War Memorial. There is uh, none on the um, the National Museum of Australia um, yeah. for the last five or six years, which the Minister, Tony Burke, has actually remarked on as, as absurd. So he's presumably got that one in his sights. Uh, the National Archives doesn't have a university-based historian. So, you know, that, that is, it is amazing. And, yeah. and it, it, it's hard to know whether it's more symptom of the problem or cause, perhaps a mm. bit of both, but um, it is something that we do have in our sites. We, we believe it's, it's in, there's a lot of expertise out there and a lot of experience also in running institutions uh, uh, that, that could be brought in, um, you know, to, to engage, I think, more closely with the kinds of issues that we've been talking about today. I mean, business people, lawyers, fantastic, but they're mm. not really um, users of archives and libraries in, in the way that scholars are. And I think that it's important that there are people who are experienced, you know, actually have hands-on experience of using these resources and using these institutions who are there on, on the cultural boards. Indeed. Just to close out this discussion, um, finally, you reflect in the end of your piece about the broader implications of this issue, you know, the underfunding, the War Memorial being in the wrong portfolio, you know, the efficiency dividends mm. that are ongoing from decades ago. This is certainly going to have effects on our democracy, on our understanding of our own stories. Uh, so, Michelle, perhaps you can um, mm. just reflect just finally on what you think these broader implications are for our understanding of ourselves as a country. Yeah, I think one of the things that is really important to remember that these 
organisations, the national cultural institutions, have a statutory role, which is to protect, preserve, collect, maintain the records of our history. And they collect priceless and irreplaceable you know, um, visual documentary heritage. They they do this role for us and we should be able to trust that they can be funded sufficiently to do that properly because they hold that material in trust, not just for us, but for everyone who will, you know, everyone who come will, will come to Australia after us. You know, that this is a really important role and at the moment these institutions are simply not funded to do that role, to do their kind of that crucial role for Australian democracy and for kind of, you know, um, citizenship. It's a really important uh, role that they play. And I worry that if we are kind of locking up this material in a way that people can't consult it or access it. I mean, one of the things that's really lovely when you go to the National Library Manuscripts Room, you often see people, members of the public, just come in and they kind of want to sort of say, what what are you having here? And they kind of look at the maps and the walls and they look at the, you know, materials that they see. And that's everybody's right to be able to do that. So I just think that if we make this a kind of elite concern that is only available to a very small number of people, then that diminishes all of us. We all have the right to see this material and historians and researchers have the right to use it. And I think Mm. we have to be able to maintain um, access and and preserve these collections appropriately for for the future. Well, thank you both for speaking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure again to speak with you, even if it is on such a very dire topic. And uh, I really appreciate all your advocacy on these topics as well. Thanks so much, Amy. Thank you, Amy. I've just been speaking with Michelle Arrow, Professor in Modern History at Macquarie Uni and Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at the Australian National University and also representatives of the Australian Historical Association. And we've been talking about a whole range of issues relating to our national cultural institutions. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I now have with me in the studio two people who are important to Geelong in different ways. One is part of the Geelong Football Club. He's the vice president of that club. His name is Bob Gartland and Jason Smith is the director of the Geelong Gallery. So I'm welcoming now into the studio, Bob. Hi there, Bob. Morning, Amy. Thanks for having us in. Great to have you. And Jason. Hi, Amy. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you doing? We're doing very well, thank you. Thank you for making the trip up the highway. It's always a pleasure. And it's always a trip. It is a trip, <laughs> isn't it? I feel like it just gets longer and longer all yeah. the time. Yeah. It, it, yeah, there's always a breakdown on the Westgate. Yes. And uh, now there's rubbish all over the road out this way, so... It was, a, it was an eventful trip. Well, the yeah. three of us know what it's like, but it yeah. just makes you appreciate the beauty of the Bellarine. Doesn't it? And the surf coast the even more. The only peninsula. How lucky we are to live in Geelong. We are. Mm. It's true. We wouldn't be biased at all. Not much. No. 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 We were just talking off air that, Jason, you are semi-new to Geelong. I've been just... there for... I will have been... I've been there for just over three and a half years. Yeah. And I, I have been... I've been the gallery director since... April 2016 and uh, it was important that I lived in Geelong. My partner lives in North Fitzroy but we just have this mobile life. I love living in Geelong and it is really very important if you're leading or helping lead a cultural organisation in a great city like Geelong and the gallery is a very old gallery. It's, 100 and, it's coming up to its 125th birthday and um, 
it's it's really important you're part of the community and people's attitude to you really does alter when they know that you're part of the community you're living amongst them and mm. i think you get a much geelong's got a great art community it's got a great cultural community as much as it's got a great sporting heritage so um it, it, you know it's wonderful to be part of a very dynamic city in that sense and and you need to live there to be part of it fully that's so true and it's a unique community and with its own set of challenges and beautiful qualities and it does encompass not just Geelong I'm often we think about Geelong as just that city but it's really the whole region of Ballerine and the surf coast there's the greater Geelong Mm. area I suppose um you know I, I think it's important too that I mean I sit on a few committees and there are people from other locations Torquay Aries Anglesey Colac they they see themselves as very distinct, and they are indeed. Mm, mm. Um, but Geelong is a is a major metropolis unto itself, and even though it's only seventy clicks down the road from Melbourne, it is not Melbourne. And the secret's out with Geelong. There's more people moving to Geelong from Melbourne than ever before, and uh, yeah, I think m- most uh, of the people that are coming from Melbourne to Geelong are absolutely flabbergasted with the quality of life we have there and uh, it's certainly not a secret any longer because we've had the highest capital growth I think in the state in the last couple of years so it's been been an extraordinary explosion for us. It has. Um, We need another public (coughs) hospital because we're straining under just having one really but that's a whole other story. Mm. Um, Geelong is an interesting place to live and even when I was in high school um, it was really still a small town and it's, although it has a significant prominence as a regional centre of Victoria, it, culturally it has been, for most of my lifetime, quite small. And it's only now really expanding and becoming very cosmopolitan and, you know, there's really trendy cafes. And, you know, before I used to only be able to get an espresso-type coffee from the milk bar across the road from my high school, <laughs> and now you can go to cafes <laughs> anywhere in Newtown. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's changing all the time, isn't it? But Geelong... Was that Geelong High School, Amy? No, I went to Sacred Heart. <coughs> Sacred Heart. I know that yeah. little cafe. Do you? Mm. It's a really great On the corner? Yeah, yeah. Mm. No, there were some really wonderful people there. I I went to school with Peter Riccardi's cousin, so I heard all about, you know, football from every angle when I was growing up. And uh, obviously my family influenced me, taking me to the football to see Gary Ablett Sr. um, play at Cadinia Park. There's so many really important memories for many people in Geelong that associate great fond moments in their lives with the Geelong Football Club. I mean, let's start out with this kind of inextricable connection between the Geelong Football Club and its kind of vital importance Mm. to a huge number of people in Geelong. Historically, the stories have run parallel between the football club and the city. Uh, 1857 saw the creation of the longest railway in Australia and that was the Geelong to Melbourne Railway. And in those days, Geelong was the commercial centre of of Victoria and certainly the commercial centre of the Western District. And it was the gateway to the gold fields and the wool industry and so on. So it was known commercially as the pivot. And ultimately, our football team, when it was formed in July 18, 1859, at the Victoria Hotel on the corner of Mirable and Mallop Street in Geelong, we were known as 
the Pivotonians. Mm. And uh, we were known as the Pivotonians all the way through till 1923 when, um, when we became uh, the Black Cats and ultimately just the cats. But that story of Geelong and Geelong's history and, as you say, this inextricable link between the club and the fortunes of the city running parallel over 160 years. This year is our 160th birthday, Mm. which is extraordinary. It's huge. We are the second oldest continuous sporting organisation in the world, second only to Melbourne Football Club. So our story not just runs parallel with the city story, but it also runs parallel to the story of football because the creator of football Mm. or the fellow known as the father of football, Tom Wills, was a Geelong person and he lived at uh, uh, Point Henry a long time before old Coa got there. Mm. And uh, interestingly, this year we've actually located the site of the Bellevue Homestead and we're working with Alcoa and the City of Greater Geelong and the National Trust at the moment to actually put a plaque on that site where the Wills family lived. And um, so that's an important part, an integral part of the story of the Geelong Football Club in the city. Mm. How did football and the Geelong Football Club evolve and a game or a code mm. be created? Um, the, the Melbourne Football Club was created in 1858 and uh, Tom Wills had a role to play uh, in that and also his uh, cousin Henry Colden Harrison had a role to play with Hammersley and others uh, in the in the creation of, of the Melbourne Football Club and uh, the year following Geelong was created uh, on the back of an advertisement that was placed in the Geelong Advertiser on the 15th of July in 1859 by Alexander Mason and uh, the the advertisement said admirers of football meet at the Victoria Hotel on Tuesday evening at 7.30pm signed A. Mason so they met at the Victoria Hotel and uh, a football club was formed and in that first year in 1859 they played five practice matches at the rear of the Port Arlington Hotel, which was nowhere near Port Arlington. Mm. It was actually out near the Eastern Gardens uh, and uh, they played five practice matches there, which often went for two or three hours with no score being scored and they they would often then just adjourn to the hotel (laughs) for refreshments. And uh, so Geelong Football Club adopted the Melbourne rules in 1859 and then it wouldn't be till the following year in 1860 when they played their first match against Melbourne at the Argyle Ground in uh, Aberdeen Street in Geelong and that was the first match. Went for three hours and it was a scoreless draw. Oh, that's painful. Scoreless draw, wow. <laughs> Can you even call it a draw? But the call to admirers <laughs> of football for before you know that led to the formation of the Geelong Football Club, Bob, is that because the people had seen what Melbourne had done and what it was, how it was playing? Well, there was already this interest in football of a number of different varieties as far back as 1840 in Geelong. They were playing probably six or seven different styles of football. There was rugby, there was a hybrid game that was a mix of rugby and the association game, which we later named soccer. 
There was the Indigenous game and a whole range of different variations. So there was an interest in football of all different types. Mm. And what Mason's ad did was uh, focus that interest so that people from all different uh, persuasions came together to create this club with the interest in, in the game of football. And when, when you go through the early documentation and the records, there's this singular driving passion. And the, the, it was interesting, the letters to the editor in 1859 spoke about giving the teetotalers something to do. <laughs> That's you know, the funniest part, is kicking. that it was a healthy outlet for their uptight obsessions. Well, there's a fellow called um, uh, Stitt Jenkins, and he w- led the teetotal body in Geelong in 1859, and he actually, back as early as May, suggested a football club to keep uh, all the teetotalers uh, busy. And uh, the opponents of the teetotalers thought it was a fantastic idea if they belted the living daylights out of each other on the football field because it gave them something else to do yeah. rather than complain about people drinking alcohol. So <laughs> Stitt Jenkins then created the Recreation Society, which you know gave uh, people a whole lot of other interests other than football. Mm. But that first, that first year in, in, in the life of the Geelong Football Club changed the city forever because from that moment Geelong started to become the centre of the football world's focus because as early as 1860 and and certainly in the 1870s and the 1880s we won uh, seven premierships in nine years which hasn't been done and the best football was actually being played in Geelong not in Melbourne. And the two best football teams in 1879 were the Geelong Football Club and Barwon. Now, Barwon was made up of a a team of factory workers and the Geelong Football Club was made up of public school boys from the Geelong Grammar and the Geelong College. So you had this bunch of thugs from the mills. That's massive. (laughs) Playing against these public, and they liked nothing more than belting the living daylights out of these schoolboys. Yeah, which they did. Nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To a point where Barwon <laughs> actually got uh, deregistered as a club in the early eighteen wow. eighties, and uh, but Geelong continued <coughs> on and won the premierships that they did, and uh, yeah, it sort of cemented Geelong's place in football history. Mm. When did the iconic uh, navy and white hoop uniform come about? Was that right at the beginning or close to? Uh, no, it's it's interesting because back in the 1870s, uh, prior to the blue and white hoops being part of our uh, DNA, uh, Geelong wore white knickerbockers or white trousers yeah. with white shirts. Ooh, and wow. our nickname was the flower sacks because we looked like <laughs> a bunch of flower sacks running around. So, um, it, the, the, and there's a lot of discussion about the, the creation of the blue and white hoops, but within two years, Geelong College, Geelong Grammar, Barwon Rowing Club and Geelong Football Club, who were all integrated and related in different ways, all wore blue and white hoops. So um, that was in the late 1870s and um, we adopted the blue and white hooped jumper 
And prior to that, there'd also been a plain navy blue jumper, uh, which in one of the film footages of a game in 1911 between Geelong and Ballarat, which used to be played each Easter Monday. And because the Ballarat jersey was a vertical stripe jersey and it was a bit similar to Geelong, this is probably the first clash jersey that they've ever, that's ever been used. But Geelong wore, again, the plain navy blue. And so the, the blue and white hoops were adopted in the 1870s and then we were known then as the Pivotonians mm. right up until 1923 when Sam Wells, the great cartoonist of the time, uh, suggested that Geelong's poor start to the 1923 season could be assisted by the obscure evoking of good luck of black cats. And he drew a cartoon to that effect. And then Geelong won the next week. And then they had another cartoon and Geelong won the next week. And then on the third week, Geelong adopted the cat as a mascot. And on the fourth week, an enterprising fellow produced some enamel button pins with uh, the black cat's Mm. Geelong's mascot and sold them at the ground. So this was probably the first instance of some illegal merchandising going (laughs) on. Unlicensed. In 1923, (laughs) and the league didn't get a clip. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, things have really changed, haven't they? It's interesting. Uh, I actually have one of those buttons from that actual game. Oh, really? Which is pretty rare. Yeah. Mm. I didn't know it was from the first game instance of that that's, coming about. That's, that's the first time the cat was uh, used or, or nominated or named as the, the mascot for, for Geelong Football yeah, Club. Right. I'm interested in this idea of superstition because I know a lot of football fans are very superstitious. I'm extremely superstitious. <laughs> a lot of Geelong people are, especially when anyone mentions buy, everyone gets a little bit superstitious. But why was the black cat a sign of good luck? Well, in those days, um, it could be good or bad luck, uh-huh. depending on the way that you interpreted it, the cat, I suppose. Uh, and Wells was suggesting in his cartoon that this was the good luck that they needed. So Geelong were sort of innocent bystanders and just let it happen. So the thing actually evolved organically, which is probably the best way that things like that and social badges should arrive, it should be owned by the people, and this is what actually happened in in the end. It wasn't the club who 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 forced the mascot on the people. It was actually the people who decided that they wanted to bring this cat as part of their story. So yeah. that's how that's how we became the cats. It's really phenomenal. But they were called the black cats into the early fifties, and then it was just the fifty three or fifty two or fifty three. Oh, well into the fifties, mid 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 nineteen fifties, they were still producing merchandise with the black cats on it. Interestingly, I've got a trophy which we believe is probably the only trophy that we received in nineteen fifty two after winning the back to back premierships in fifty one and fifty two. And the trophy's actually engraved to the Black Cats in 1952. Oh, really? mm. So it was still mm. a pretty formal uh, expression. Uh, and it wasn't until perhaps later in the 1950s that they dropped the black and we just became the cats. It's fascinating to see how the logos continue to evolve as well because a lot of people have different attachments to different 
representations of the cat and I have my attachment but it's pretty predictable as being during my childhood what that logo was at the time which was that really kind of angry hissing cat from the 90s which mm. is like so retro now when you look at it that is. yeah I, I want to bring it back but that's just me it's interesting because um, the football club was 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 born out of the cricket club as Stitt Jenkins actually said back then that cricketers were being encased in uh, masses of superabundant flesh, <laughs> which I think was code for stacking on a few kilograms over the winter. And, uh, and he also felt that, and Wills, uh, when he wrote the letter to Bell's Life, mentioned that cricket grounds could be well served to be trampled upon during the winter to make them better to play cricket on in the summer. So the football club was formed out of the out of the cricket club and for many, many years it was the Geelong Football and Cricket Club and the logo represented the Geelong Cricket and Football Club, so GCFC. Mm. So they actually had a logo which was very similar to Carlton. Oh, right, okay. Where, the, where all the, the letters... That, uh, sit on top of mm, each other. Superimposed. And again, that went right through until the 19... variation in the early 1950s. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting story when you talk about the evolution of the logo uh, because the very earliest logo was, was that of the Geelong Cricket and Football Club. Wow, that's amazing. Bob, you know so much about the Geelong Football Club's history, which is fantastic, and it is a mark of the attention and dedication that you have paid to this area for I'm guessing a lot of your life you've collected so much but I was astounded to hear that that's only just the tip of the iceberg of your own collection Bob so what was this like an evolutionary process for you did you you didn't set out to create a massive you know time capsule of the Geelong Football Club or how did this all Um, come about it's interesting I went to a small school outside of Geelong and um, the currency in the schoolyard was football cards. So it's 1963. Our school teacher was a fanatical Geelong supporter. <laughs> he got all the school together, I think there was 20 of us, and made the announcement one day that the greatest footballer in Australia was coming to play for Geelong. And he told us about Polly Farmer. And we all thought that Polly was a very unusual name for a footballer. And we'd never heard of Polly Farmer. And uh, so our teacher cut out his photograph and the newspaper cutting and stuck it by the back door. So when we all filed out at the end of each school day, as we walked past, and this is before he'd played a game, we would walk past and say, good night, Polly, and just tap the, f- the photograph on the way oh, out wow. the door. So when I was nine years old, I was playing marbles and winning football cards and my goal was to win as many polypharma cards as I could (laughs) and uh, I managed to hang on to one of those for my whole life and uh, that's probably my most treasured thing, not my most valuable item, but Mm. my most treasured thing. I met Polly when I was nine and he came to a pie night at our little league club and, you know, shook my hand and his middle finger went up to my elbow. His hands were so big and he was just a beautiful, humble, gentle champion 
and uh, we all had the opportunity to ask him a question and he came over and shook my hand and and I couldn't get the words to a question out. <laughs> I, I had three or four beauties to ask him, but yeah. I just couldn't get the words out. And um, I again then met him a bit later in my life, in my teens, and um, um, my wife's father asked me to meet him in Geelong City and 8.30 on a Saturday morning and his father, my wife's father pulled up and uh, Polly Farmer was sitting in the passenger seat with Billy Goggin sitting in the back and I think it might have been Brother Steve from St Gabriel's Monastery in the back seat and my father-in-law, my now father-in-law, then just wound the windows down and said, uh, jump in son, we're off to the races. And uh, so for a couple of years I used to run bets around <laughs> And I wow. got to know all the bookmakers on a first-name basis and um, we lost Polly this year. Mm. And But the last few years I was fortunate enough to fly over to Perth on a few occasions to visit him and uh, he's been an important person in my life. And um, So that whole commencement, if you like, of my collecting started with my Polly Farmer card mm. in 1963. And no, I didn't dream of building this... Uh, huge collection it's something that's happened organically and uh uh as as time goes on there are things that become more important and the collection of data and uh imaging i've now collected 116,000 photographs which i've now digitized and catalogued dated and named and uh i've now collected 850 game films back to 1911 and these are at least as important as objects mm. because they they tell a different history and a different story and um I've I've also started collecting uh, or have been collecting audio there's a couple of other things that are really uh important mm. uh, there's a 1900 album of football cards which is the oldest set of football cards certainly for the Geelong team and I think it's the second oldest complete set of any team uh, of Australian football in the world and there's also a letter from the then coach in 1952 who was Reg Hickey one of the great Geelong names that he wrote to uh, the father of Jeff Williams, who just came up from Gippsland and won the best and fairest in his first year at the club as a young lad and in a premiership year. And Reg Hickey wrote this letter. Um, and in the letter to Jeff Williams' father, he says, I have strived for quite a while now to get the type of chap that we have in our club. And whilst I'm proud of their football ability, I'm even more prouder of their conduct and their manliness on and off the field. And that goes straight to the values that we talk about today, about being good people. And Hickey was saying that being a good man and a good person was actually more important than being a good footballer back in 1952. And that goes to the whole value set of our football club and many football clubs today. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's, it's, it's a great piece of social history from that time because Hickey was seen as a very hard taskmaster but there was this side to him, this very human, personal side to him 
where values and character first was the most important thing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I was reading a history book about Geelong and I think it was for the 150th maybe and they were talking about how a lot of the coaches had a religious or Christian background and they were guided by, you know, some strong morals or ideas of being good and a model citizen, I guess. I'm interested in the club culture, as you say, what the continuous features are of the Geelong Football Club, not just, you know, the hoops, like the visual and the obvious symbolic things that have continued, but what, to your mind, being the vice president of the club, has continued in terms of the spirit of the club in, in addition to what you've just mentioned? Well, I think, I think Geelong Football Club's unique in lots of ways. During the Second World War, our whole team enlisted and went away to war. And we went into recess for two years because uh, we had no players. And uh, the the army had taken our ground to use it for training and exercises uh, in Cryo Oval out in the Eastern Gardens. And when we came back in 1943, we applied to re-enter the competition. And uh, uh, some clubs opposed our re-entry, Essendon in particular, uh, and Essendon's reasoning was that Geelong was the end of the earth. It, it cost too much money to get there with petrol wow. rationing. And and uh, so so there were clubs that were actually opposed to us coming back into the competition or, you know, uh, assuming or, or recommencing our, our story. And North Melbourne actually stood with us at the time and uh, said that, you know, if, if Geelong are out, we're out. And uh, it was a great thing at the time to stand firm with us. And that that whole notion of this rivalry between Geelong and Melbourne, we, as a football club, we often think that we're unique and we believe that we are. And we're, our club is owned, obviously, by our members and we're there because of our members. And that's been the case for 160 years that our football club has been so firmly entrenched as part of the community. It's more than just a football club and football's more than just a game. Yeah. It's particularly in Geelong. You know, our community centre as part of our football club is extraordinary. You know, we've had over 120,000 visitors through our community centre and then we run 16 community programs out of our football club that are as part of the Geelong fabric of our society um, and it's extraordinary the support that emanates from the club and permeates through the whole of the Geelong community. And, um, you know, I'm proud of and we're proud of who we are as a club and and the fine young men that we've produced over a long period of time. And this goes right back to Joe Slater in the First World War. When you go to the exhibition, you'll see a 1912 team photograph with Joe Slater sitting in the front left. He went away. He was one of the greatest athletes in Australia at the time and went away to war and didn't come home, lost his life in France after re-entering the battle as a wounded man to bring people out. And um, and again, he epitomises the Geelong story. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole bunch of stories around Joe Slater and people like him 
and um, there's been scallywags along the way as well. But um, yes, the Geelong story is firmly entrenched as part of Geelong City's DNA, and I think that's what makes us unique. Mm. Um, and our value set changes. Yeah, but it's important and central to who we are. Mm. What a perfect way to finish. Thank you so much, both of you. You've done such a wonder for Geelong, I think, in bringing what is an amazing collection to the rest of the area and also to Victoria. And I really appreciate your time and coming up today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Geelong Football Club Vice President Bob Gartland and Geelong Gallery Director Jason Smith. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. It's really lovely to be with you on this Tuesday morning and it's even lovelier to have Professor Chris Wallace on the show once again. She is based at the 5050 by 2030 Foundation at the University of Canberra and is a long-standing member, or was, sorry, not anymore, a long-standing member of the Canberra Press Gallery. Chris also has authored uh, some books, including How to Win an Election. And Chris joins me now to talk about federal politics and a whole range of other issues that uh, draw into that sphere of Canberra and federal politics. So welcome on to the show, Chris, and thank you so much for coming back on. Good morning, Amy. Now, Chris, there is a lot that's been happening, and, of course, uh, we haven't had a chance um, to reference the Queen, and I'm not going to go into it because we did discuss it on the show in relation to UK politics a few weeks ago, but it did actually mean, for practical purposes, that the Parliament wasn't sitting when it was supposed to be, when it was scheduled to be sitting. So now we are having a sitting week this week um, as a replacement, and it does mean that there is a lot of government business on the agenda, uh, including a national anti-corruption body. Uh, the legislation or bill will be put into the parliament tomorrow. So there's already been a lot of discussion about what will be in this bill and uh, even Jackie Lambie making some warning comments that, quote, unless this thing's got a set of chops on it bigger than Jaws, I'm not interested in putting it through. So there's a bit of <laughs> pressure on the government to to make sure that this is as rigorous as possible. Uh, and Chris, I know you've been very engaged on this issue too, so I'm sure you've been watching it very carefully and uh, um, perhaps hoping for similar things as Jackie. Yes, it's a really big week in, in Australia's national life with the this bill being introduced. Of course, the timing of the bill has been a matter of wide interest uh, there was concern raised by especially the crossbenchers that there'd be a problem with getting this bill properly scrutinised and dealt with and voted on before Christmas. Uh, there was a bit of argy-bargy between the government and the, and the Teals over that. Uh, Anthony Albanese initially said he only promised to get the bill into Parliament before the end of the year. Uh, others said, and there was some evidence supporting the idea that he had said at a different time that it would be dealt with and legislated for by Christmas, um, you know, this is just the, the noise of politics. The fact is the bill is here. Uh, the Queen's death has not stopped it being introduced in a timely fashion. It's going to be debated. It's going to go through, get to the Senate, and there'll be more argy-bargy. But uh, it does look, Amy, very 
strongly like there will be a legislated National Integrity Commission by Christmas. And we were rudely interrupted by signal. Uh, so we're now having a very strong signal and we can return to our conversation with Dr. Chris Wallace talking all things federal politics. And Chris was just explaining to us uh, what was happening with the federal ICAC bill and how important it was. And then I was going to jump in with another question. So I'm going to uh, bring Chris back in and ask you, Chris, what are some of the key components of this bill that we think are going to be in it? And I'll put one out there, which is obviously that uh, this bill is going to tackle serious or systemic corruption. And it also means that it doesn't have to be criminal behaviour. So criminal behaviour is a very high bar because not all uh, corruption is a crime. So I think it's promising to hear that it would be serious or systemic. But I think obviously uh, the devil is in the detail because what does count as serious or systemic and what kinds of previous allegations of corruption might fit within the remit of this proposed body. So do you have thoughts on that particular element and also the other elements that people are um, pushing for, like the third-party inclusion? Yes, th th these are the main two kind of areas of contention. Will matters short of actual mm. uh, legally, you know, criminal misconduct be included? Yes, they will. And this is incredibly important because there's a very large area of government uh, activity where misconduct does fall short of criminal standards but is clearly wrong. Uh, the major example is the massive, you know, industrial-scale exploitation of, of government grants, uh, the rorting of government grants under the previous LNP government in many people's views, including my own uh, and including in, in many, you know, eminently qualified uh, legal practitioners feel the same thing. Um, when you have industrial-scale rorting of government grants such as that it's clearly designed to get a government re-elected, that's something that is not strictly against the law but does fall squarely into the bracket of misconduct. So it's vital that any National Integrity Commission be able to address that broader misconduct issue, not just the criminal standard of, of actual, you know, legally prohibited corruption. So there's a big tick on that box. The other thing is, will it be retrospective? Uh, will, it, will, it, will the new body be able to examine past issues of corruption? Um, and that is, of course, also vital because there does seem to have been, uh, in many expert practitioners' view, uh, rorts, illegalities, misconduct that needs to be examined for the, from the past and needs to be dealt with, you know, if you don't have consequences for misconduct and, uh, and other forms of corruption, well, people keep doing it. So that's really vital. The third area of contention was whether third parties, so, for example, lobbyists could be drawn into the investigative net of the new body, and it looks like the answer will be yes to. Um, there's a lot of debate, Amy, about whether the government was going to do all of those things anyway or whether... Uh, the Teals and other crossbenchers have, have in fact been crucial in making sure those things happen. We'll never know. Uh, but the good news does seem to be that the bill will be robust, comprehensive and hopefully passed by Christmas. Yes. Well, it's exciting times to see something that's been talked about for so long possibly come to fruition. 
Uh, we did see from Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney General, yesterday, as you have referenced, uh, indicate to the crossbench that um, the Anti-Corruption Commission will be able to investigate any person who could seek to corrupt a public official. Um, so that is really great because you don't want to see an investigation which is just one-sided. You need to get the full picture of any kind of um, corruption allegation. But there's also discussions around can we ensure that this body is uh, independent, not just by law, but also in its funding? Because clearly a body can be undermined and other bodies have been undermined by previous governments, including the coalition, uh, reducing the funding and then therefore limiting the ability of anybody to actually um, you know, investigate these issues. So that's another question uh, that's certainly come up, and Labor seems to say that they have an answer for that. Yes, that has been a big issue too in, in bodies like the Australian National Audit Office, which already exist uh, under successive coalition governments uh, up to the last election. The funding for the ANAO was severely cut, and of course that constrained its abilities to to investigate what the, the Morrison government, for example, was up to. So it really is a crucial issue. Um, just on what exactly is in, in the bill... This is a really interesting kind of point of finesse in terms of current politics, Amy, in that the, the, the crossbench was really pressing the Albanese government to release a draft version of their bill uh, for the Teals to look at while all the royal funereal activities were happening. Um, and Anthony Albanese said, no, it's going to happen this way. Parliament's going to come back this week the caucus is going to be shown the bill and examine it and determine its position on it, and then everybody else will see the bill. Now, that might be, seem a, a kind of arcane point of politics, Amy, but uh, it, was, it was actually Anthony Albanese early on in this parliament going to the front, to the, the crossbench, who are incredibly important. Um, look, we like talking to you. We are seriously engaging with you, but we are also the government. We have our own MPs who need to determine positions first, uh, they need to be seriously consulted and, and you know, their views taken into, into account. So just settle for a moment, wait, uh, wait for this caucus meeting to happen and then everybody else can see the bill. So it might seem small, but in terms of keeping his own ranks uh, happy, consulted, included, a very important thing if you want a harmonious and effective government uh, that stays together effectively, that's what's happening in Canberra today and uh, soon we'll all see exactly what's in the bill. But I, I think everyone's going to be in broad agreement. There might be a bit of theatre around it, um, but I think together this parliament will make it happen. Um, the only entity with, which is pretty farcical in all of this is the opposition, uh, which has got this posture that it's somehow negotiating its position over the bill. Well, you know, it was appalling over its own joke version of a National Integrity Commission bill uh, in the previous parliament, so it's pretty hard to take their views seriously on this at all. Well, it's also really surprising that they are quite intent on negotiating over this bill, given how threadbare their proposal was and how toothless it was. Uh, and it certainly has concerned some of the crossbenchers, including David Pocock and Zoe Daniel, who have expressed concerns around the possibility that Labor and the Coalition might band together on this and perhaps not ensure that all of the, the elements that have been in the Helen Haynes bill previously or that have been pushed for by civil society 
uh, might be in there. And one of the elements that have been raised is also protections for whistleblowers, uh, which is clearly a very important issue and is ongoing in Australian society because um, we've certainly seen a number of whistleblowers uh, being pursued and that's a clear concern. And I wonder, do you think that there is any appetite for providing protection to whistleblowers? Well, we'll, we'll know when we see the bill. I think uh, the government is historically on the side of the angels on this one uh, in terms of the last couple of parliaments. Um, everyone can see the the unfairness that's been meted out to uh, Witness K and um, his solicitor. So I think there's a great deal of empathy on that score. You're quite right when you say the detail is crucial because you go too far on some, with something like that and you, you end up hamstringing government. You don't do enough and you end up with whistleblowers being outrageously crucified as they have been over the last few years in Canberra. Uh, so these things are, are really matters for balance, for very careful drafting. And sometimes, Amy, you don't get it exactly right the first time. Uh, sometimes you've got to do something, get it running, uh, see, you know, kick the tyres and tweak it. So I, I don't think when this bill passes, it's it's the end of the story. I think it'll operate for a couple of years. I think it'll be revisited and probably tweaked. But the crucial thing now is for a, a good, robust bill that's, that not everybody agrees on, on every aspect of detail, but which has broad support, uh, goes through, gets into operation, starts rounding up baddies and tanning their asses. Um, because God knows there's been so little accountability in Canberra over the last few years and everybody's just desperate for a good bill to get up, get through and get going. Indeed. And there will be a, 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 an inquiry, a committee inquiry, before the Senate votes on this bill in November. So that provides an additional layer of scrutiny and oversight as well. Um, one other element that's kind of related and then draws us into the upcoming October federal budget is that the federal government, uh, especially Jim Chalmers, but also Katie Gallagher, have been, as they've said, looking through the budget line by line to find savings. And they've certainly identified a number of projects uh, called community development projects, over 100 of them, that um, are slated to be axed or cancelled in this October budget. And it was really interesting to see The Guardian's report on this today because um, they explained what some of these projects were, which were uncovered, uncovered by the audit that Labor has done. Uh, one was a $25 million grant to a resources company called Iron Road that is more than 70% owned by a Cayman Island-based investment fund. There's also a $1.3 million grant for the Noosa Golf Club car park expansion, which is a private club charging $1,500 joining fee and a yearly fee of over $1,200. So there are some examples here that clearly Labor don't think are a good use of government money. Uh, but these aren't the only things that the government is planning on cutting spending on. We are hearing broader uh, calls from Jim Chalmers to say, get ready, tighten your belts, because, you know, we are going to be cutting funding elsewhere. And I wondered, could you explain to us and share with us the thinking, Labor's thinking at the moment around the economy and its management of it, especially through the federal budget? Well, well first up, on those grants you cite, it is absolutely sick-making just how disgusting so many of those allegedly those alleged community development grants are. Like it is actually viscerally upsetting when you hear 
uh, the federal taxpayers' money being sunk into things that are effectively, you know, how do we take care of our rich mates' recreational life kind of grants uh, under the previous government? And it is excellent that the Albanese government is going through them and, and you know, selecting the most egregious and hopefully crushing them. Um, but this this wider issue of cutting government spending, it's, you know, we've got a lot to relearn as a community about how economic policy works, Amy. Um, of course, the Hawke-Keating government ran, in effect, a national ongoing masterclass in economic policy. You'll remember, well, you might not, but your parents might remember... Paul Keating patiently going on 7.30 report night after night and explaining the J curve and the current account deficit and so on. Um, and we've all, we're all going to have to relearn this again because we're going through incredibly turbulent economic times that are going to go on for, for quite a lot longer yet. But, but this, this much of the lesson Jim Chalmers, Treasurer Jim Chalmers, is trying to communicate now, and it's this, that when you have strong inflation and an economy needs to be cooled down, Central banks put up interest rates, but also government can act to tighten spending and to the extent it does, central banks don't need to put up interest rates so much. So this is a very hard argument for any government to sell. It's a, an especially hard argument for Labor governments to, spell, to sell, especially incoming ones, because we're all on the sidelines uh, expecting the government to spend a lot of money on the, on the things that have been neglected in the social democratic sphere and do them right away. But what the government's got to avoid is not crunching the budget in a way that would, would mean that the Reserve Bank has got to put up interest rates even more than it's going to already. Now, before you freak out, it can be done in a good way or it can be done in a bad way. We're used to coalition governments when, when spending gets cut, targeting the poor, targeting welfare, targeting health, targeting education. It doesn't have to be done that way. And historically, Labor, especially actually state level in a couple of cases, um, has been really effective at going deeply into the government budget, finding the things that are coalition priorities and cutting spending there. So, for example, business welfare. Um, there's an awful lot of subsidies for business that you could just cut uh, and that's an example of a spending cut that aligns with Labor values. So I'd expect to see the beginning of that in this budget, uh, probably more in the next budget. And that's a good thing because to the extent bad LNP decision-making on things like business welfare have been made years ago and just go on and on and on and on, it's good to find them and get rid of them and reconcentrate, reprioritise government spending on the areas that really affect people welfare, health, education, training. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got to get ready for the idea that there's good government spending cuts and dumb government spending cuts. And we're going to look to the Albanese government for smart ones, not dumb ones. Uh, and, of course, we'll just have to examine these budgets as they go forward and, and decide whether they are smart or dumb and hold the, the government feet to the fire accordingly. Yeah. And we have seen also global concerns around the ec economies. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is a big problem and has changed uh, costs for a range of people and countries around gas and petrol. Um, and obviously, a whole range of economic sanctions as well have had different impacts on different countries. But we're also seeing uh, concerns around potential recessions uh, in the US and the UK 
And we've also seen the British pound hit a record low uh, against the dollar. And it's it seems like there's quite a bit of um, economic crises really over in the UK with the new trust uh, Tory government. So is there any chance that the kind of global economic issues might start to influence Australian domestic policy? Oh, absolutely. You know, we are an economy fully integrated into the world economy and there is no way we can escape these kind of headwinds. But the Ukraine war has been the excuse for many bad governments to give themselves a leave pass for bad policy. And if you want the classic example, the trust, the incoming trust government, uh, Liz Truss, of course, the new Tory party leader, the new British Prime Minister succeeding another appalling Tory Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, uh, has proven to be even worse than her predecessor. Um, and finally, the Tories are paying the price. Uh, anyone watching exchange rates over the last couple of days will be astonished by the pound plummeting like a stone, uh, including against the Russian ruble, even against the Rwandan franc. That's how bad it is. And the reason is that the, the trust government has taken leave of all economic sense. It's created massive tax cuts for the rich. It, it's, it has eliminated the top British tax rate altogether. And in this grotesque, unfunded series of tax cuts for the rich, um, you know, markets have looked at this situation and gone, you've got to be joking, and they're selling off the pound hand over fist. So because that government has been irresponsible budget-wise, uh, the, the England's Reserve Bank, the Bank of England, is going to have to massively hike up rates in a way it wouldn't have had the government been sensible on its budget. This is the tightrope Jim, Jim Chalmers is walking, and he's doing it so well so far He's being, he's taking us into his confidence. He's saying, look, there's going to be spending cuts. There has to be, to the extent we have a responsible budget, interest rates will stay lower in Australia. He's a very credible economic kind of steward so far. Markets are taking him seriously. Commentators are marking him, as, him well. And when you look at, you know, when you compare what the Australian government's doing against the British government right now, you can see a government that knows what it's doing is acting responsibly. We'll need to look at the at, look at the actual budget to know whether he's acting fairly uh, from from a kind of labour standpoint. Um, but so far, so good. And I tell you what, Amy, you, you lose your economic credibility only once. You never get it back. The trust government is probably finished already just through this crazy uh, series of budget moves it's made. In contrast, Jim Chalmers is really banking a lot of credibility and. Um, it's just going to be fascinating to see the detail of the budget to see how he manages to pull off this narrow path of economic credibility. Um, I've got a lot of lot of confidence that he's going to pull it off. Mm, it will be very interesting and funny to have an October budget instead of a May budget, but we have had budgets in weird months for a while now, so it's probably not as rare. Uh, Chris, I'm, oh, I should say I'm speaking with Professor Chris Wallace and we are talking about federal politics. And Chris, you did write a fantastic column in the Saturday paper uh, recently about National Cabinet and their decision-making around some of the new uh, rules about isolation. So there was a meeting on August 31st, a, a National Cabinet meeting, where the isolation period 
that was mandated if you had COVID-19. That has gone from seven days down to five if you are symptomatic. Um, So if you're not symptomatic, I should say. If if you're symptomatic, you're meant to self-regulate and still isolate for seven days. But I doubt there'll be many people um, understanding the nuance of these rules. But I was really interested in your reporting and discussion of the the kind of behind the scenes uh, of what was going on, the political uh, parts to these decisions, especially the role of Dominic Perrottet, the New South Wales uh, Premier there, and the exclusion of the CMO, Paul Kelly. So I wondered, could you give us um, the background to what you wrote about? Yeah, the behind the scenes picture, Amy, is that the, the public health officers around Australia... Uh, and in the Commonwealth, obviously in Canberra, are really, really demoralised. They feel that, you know, as we've just been saying, there's an incredible economic emergency on that that's got to be carefully managed and and economic policy is really important. Um, But there's a sense... They they feel that their advice has been discounted and that pretty much the, the economists are running the government and not listening to them anymore. Now, in in the lead up to that... National Cabinet meeting you're talking about. Um, we've ha- we've had one since this, the one that I reported. But at that one, I'm talking about two meetings ago. Uh, there, in fact, was no consensus amongst the CHOs that it was safe to cut the isolation periods for non-symptomatic COVID sufferers from seven to five days. They couldn't. There was a sense that they should be cautious and lean against the cut. No actual advice was finalised and as a result it was a very odd National Cabinet meeting in that previous National Cabinets have had the benefit of written advice from the CHOs to help inform their decision. Now, going into this meeting, of course, you had Dominic Perrottet on one hand with his notorious let it rip approach to COVID. Um, at the other end, you had the medical establishment at the AMA and so forth saying, look, it's not a good idea to do this, don't do it. So at this National Cabinet, there was no written advice from the CHO. There was no CHO. Uh, the Commonwealth CHO didn't attend. And the statement after the National Cabinet meeting didn't say that National Cabinet had been briefed on the COVID situation specifically in relation to this decision, but more broadly, more ambiguously. And it looked like a bit of a a handkerchief statement to cover the fact that National Cabinet made a very big decision to cut the isolation period without actually knowing what the health implications were. The other element of this was that the decision was also made to keep in sensitive settings like nursing homes a seven-day isolation period which the medicos felt was tacit acknowledgement that the decision to cut to five days was not safe. So we're in a situation now, and it's not unique to to Australia, it's pretty much around the world, where medical advice is being sidelined, people are just going, we're over it. Whatever the medical situation is, you know, we're going to let it rip. And, of course, Dominic Perrottet notoriously led Australia down this lowest common denominator public health policy approach, uh, and as a result, COVID deaths have massively escalated. Now, we're in, a, we're in a wave of COVID at the minute that's actually diminishing, but there's another wave ahead that, that the public health officials think could start to build from December, 
And even before that, Amy, we've got COVID death rates happening in Australia at the rate of about 350 a week. Way, way, way in excess per capita death rate even in the United States. So, you know, it's not like the pandemic's over. You know, everybody wants to pretend it's over. The medical establishment know this is far from the case. And when you look around the world, you know, you can look at New York for, at the moment, for example, there's a, a triple health threat at the minute there. There's COVID, there's monkeypox, and there's polio, for God's sake. So to the extent that the, the COVID deaths are not being reported on the mainstream media, to the extent that many long COVID sufferers have symptoms that, you know, they feel but we can't see. You know, it's not like polio and they end up in calipers. Um, it, it's like the constituency for good public health policy has evaporated. And this is a really big problem, not only because of the incredibly high death rate in Australia, but because as the smart medicos have worked out, looking at the environmental science, we're in this new historical phase. Uh, people, some of them are actually starting to call it the pandemicene. And because of climate change, because of the incredible pressure on ecosystems around the planet, uh, we're in an era where more often, more novel and often more lethal viruses are going to pop up. So to the extent we're not coping with this one well, to the extent we've just dropped our bundle, it doesn't augur well for what's ahead, not just in further waves of COVID variants, but on other novel viruses ahead. So... It's a bit of a grim situation that the, the CHOs, who are often, you know, older men with, you know, male pattern boredness, they can't quite te tear their hair out, some of them, uh, <laughs> but they're getting pretty desperate about how they've been sidelined in terms of governments listening to their serious advice. Indeed. And it's also hard to make this a key issue when we're not getting daily reporting, we're getting weekly reporting. And that is barely reported on when it comes out because it's coming out on a Friday when it's a slow, a, a quiet time and people don't really pay attention to the news as much on a Friday as they might on a Monday. Um, it seems also that it's very concerning. Um, I was kind of quite astounded to see that even in the lead up to that decision, Dr. Monique Ryan and Dr. Michelle Anandaraja, two MPs in the parliament now, new MPs who are medically trained doctors, they were also saying, don't do this. Uh, this is ridiculous. It's not based in science. At five days, um, two thirds of people are still contagious. Uh, at seven days, it's one thirds. So even seven days is quite low. I was talking to my friend in South Korea and she couldn't believe that uh, we only had seven days and she couldn't believe that we now barely have masks at all. We just in Victoria removed mask mandates for public transport. So it's kind of hard for I think Australians to put it into perspective but when you talk to someone overseas who's not in the UK or the US a lot of them are quite kind of shocked and appalled at the behavior of Australia and as you say the stakes are quite high um, I wanted to talk about long COVID because you mentioned that and you also mentioned in your piece that a committee has been commissioned um, to conduct an inquiry into long COVID and it's also currently taking public submissions until November 18 so that anyone listening who has long COVID or has something to say about long COVID can make a submission. But I wanted to understand from you, Chris, you know, where... What do you think, how do you assess Labor now, given that there is this push to even remove ISO altogether? Because that is the next stage. Dominic Perrottet has, wants to get rid of it 
full stop. He wants to treat it like any other illness, which it is certainly not, as Peter Doherty has pointed out. It's a virus where it can infect every cell in the body. Not many viruses are like that. It has so many long-term effects that even some GPs don't understand. So, you know, Chris, what are your what's your assessment of Labor's approach to this now, given that it has basically disregarded um, the medical advice, and it uh, seems to be going along with this politicisation from um, the states. You know, where to from here for Labor? It's extremely disappointing, Amy. It's the one area of the Albanese government's operations where, to me, you know, when you look across every other portfolio, what they're doing, they're doing really outstanding work with some really fine ministers. I, I don't think people appreciate just how good the Albanese government front bench is. In historical terms, it's of extraordinarily high quality. But this COVID management issue is its one signal failure. It's it's replicated, in fact, in the position of Labor state premiers too. It's not just the feds at fault here. And the the one thing that I, you know, in that Saturday paper piece I, I did, the one ray of hope was that everything I learned, learned me to, to, led me to rethink uh, Mark Butler, the health minister's position. Now, I'd hitherto thought he was just being slack. Now I'm wondering, having heard all this, whether in fact he's a bit of a victim of um, a dynamic in the system that even he can't stand up to. Uh, and that is, you know, however overwhelmed everybody is by the the economic policy imperative at the minute. Um, but my one, the one concrete ray of hope too arising from that is that Mark Butler has commissioned uh, the relevant parliamentary committee, which is chaired by Dr Mike Freelander, a, a paediatrician who's the Labor member uh, covering that Campbelltown area on the western edge of Sydney, um, he's chairing an inquiry that Butler has commissioned onto the impact management and implications of long COVID. And uh, Monique Ryan, amongst others, is a member of that committee. She's full bottle on on COVID, as is her excellent Labor colleague that you mentioned in the neighbouring seat of Higgins. And I can only hope that that long COVID inquiry is a turning point in leading government to rethink not just its management of COVID, but its future management of the inevitable other novel, you know, COVID variant waves and novel viruses that emerge in the pandemicine, because a really deep rethink has to happen. Dominic Perrottet is mad on this issue. He's taken us all down a very bad road. Uh, it's the lowest common denominator to look around the world and go, well, everybody else is doing it too. That's just not good enough. I mean, there's no reason why Australia should have lowest common denominator policy in any policy issue. Um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that long COVID committee somehow manages to be a pivot in thinking, influencing thinking for the better on this. And I wish them every strength in their work. And yes, good to encourage your listeners to make submissions. The more that committee hears from people on the ground affected, the better. Yep, they need to hear everyone's voice. And uh, I mean, just to close out that point, if it's meant to be led by economics, this is a mass disabling event. It means that the economy is going to be affected negatively because people won't be able to engage in work in the ways that they were before. And these are young people, people who had their entire working lives ahead of them and will be prevented from doing the things that they love doing. So, um, you know, I just don't think that anyone has a medium to long-term view on this issue. It's all short-term and political gain. 
uh, especially given Victoria's state election coming up. That's one factor here in the decision-making, it appears. Uh, Chris, just to close out this conversation, I did want to reference a minister who does seem to be doing well because, as you said, there are some excellent ministers. We've seen great com communication from Claire O'Neill, who is the Minister for Cybersecurity but also Home Affairs, and she's been managing the fallout from this Optus hack where 9.8 million yeah. Australians had their data hacked and of those 2.8 million people uh, had their either licence or passport numbers stolen also, which, as Claire O'Neill said last night on 7.30, effectively amounts to 100 points of ID. So identity fraud and theft is really greatly at risk. She yesterday has forced Optus's hand into offering those most at risk 12 months of free uh, credit monitoring. But that's clearly not enough, as she said. And she also said, which I was I found very refreshing in response to uh, Laura Tingle's point, well, Optus say this was a sophisticated hack. She said, no, it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't. It was a basic hack and they left the window open. Those are her words. So I wonder, could you reflect on the government's handling, at least of this crisis, and where you think it might lead? Yes, you're talking about uh, Claire O'Neill's interview with Laura Tingle on 7th Last night. In particular yep. there. And it was a terrific interview. Uh, a lot of interest on social media afterwards and how positively she was rated for that interview. She's, look, she's smart. She's incredibly, appears to be incredibly competent. I mean, she's almost the, you know, prototype Albanese government front picture. I mean, there, there's just so many good ministers. It's really encouraging. And, you know, she's completely correct in what she said. Um, there's no question Optus was being slack. Uh, it'd be fascinating to find out why they were so slack. Was it just cost savings that they didn't have a proper cybersecurity uh, defence system for our data? And I think, you know, we'll be surprising if we don't see some legislation coming forth eventually from the government just really um, creating consequences for, for companies, putting our lives at risk the way Optus seems to have done in this instance. Um, yeah, I think uh, it's unquestionable that... Um, Claire O'Neill is one of the comments of the government, for sure. Really, really good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time. I know you were just on the road, so it was a very last minute um, getting things together. So I appreciate you bringing it all together and giving us such a great informative chat about what's been happening in federal politics. It's been such a joy to get to speak with you again, and uh, I hope that you have a lovely road trip. Thank you. Well, shout out to Communications Minister Michelle Rowland. Can you please fix the internet on Australia's Highway 1? Yes. <laughs> As you can tell, <laughs> Skype doesn't work and the phone doesn't either until Chris found a spot. So thank you so much. <laughs> I've, I've just been chatting with Professor Chris Wallace from the University of Canberra and we've been talking federal politics. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.